When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the show for and about people who think big. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Revered by business leaders, politicians and his fellow economists alike, Financial Times columnist Martin Wolf is one of the world's most influential commentators. He joined Matthew Stadlin for a How To Academy livestream investigating the pandemic's effect on the global economy and what we should expect in the days to come. A very warm welcome to this How To Academy event. My name is Matt Stadlin, I'm a presenter on LBC and I host these sorts of events for the How To Academy. Thank you for supporting the How To Academy through what has been a challenging period for everybody. These events I think are absolutely crucial at a time when we're unable largely to come together physically. Of course, we prefer, as I always say, to be on stage, but this is the next best thing. The question on the lips of so many right now is, how do we get through today, let alone what happens tomorrow? But we will be focusing over the course of the next hour on the question, how do we get through next year and those that follow? The world, in other words, after 2020. What's it all going to look like when the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle come back down and settle? Will it be a picture that we even recognise? Will it be one that we enjoy? Joining me and joining you this evening, I'm delighted to say, is Martin Wolf. He's been described by Lawrence Summers, who worked both for President Clinton and President Obama, as the world's preeminent financial journalist and praise doesn't come much higher than that. He is, of course, the Financial Times' chief economics commentator. He worked for the World Bank. He's written several books. He knows the great and the good, but he is not influenced by patronage. He's a free thinker and a free writer, and he's also a brilliant communicator. Martin Wolf, a very warm welcome to you. Thank you. I don't know how the discussion is going to follow that introduction. Well, this is the first in a series within a series for the How To Academy of At Home With. And you are at home, and I believe you've largely been at home through the lockdown. Let's just start on a personal note. How have you found it? Well, I feel quite ashamed to say this, but I've actually enjoyed it uh, enormously. I do what I normally do. Uh, I'm very, very actively working for the Financial Times. Um, doing all everything I've normally done. We work completely remotely. We're all working from home. And this has worked astonishingly well. I don't think anyone reading us or looking at what we produce would notice. Uh, that, of course, is largely because we know one another so well and have worked together so closely for so many years. I don't miss the travel. I really don't miss the commuting. Uh, these sorts of exchanges are, from my point of view, really almost as good as being in the flesh and much less trouble. I'm with my wife and we're very happily together. And the only thing I really miss in all this is from my, this is purely personal. I understand what it means uh, to other people who are in a very different situation. The only thing I really miss is seeing my family and particularly my grandchildren and being able to, to be physically with them. But for me personally, I've been astonished at how much I've actually enjoyed it. You, like I am, although in my case only marginally more distantly, are of the progeny of historic trauma, because your father was actually best friends with my grandfather in Vienna in the 1920s. You were born in the mid to late 1940s, just after the end of the Second World War. Does that sort of perspective and family story bear on how you interpret this current crisis? 
Yes, first of all, actually, my father and your grandfather were best friends for, I think, about 74 years, which is quite impressive. And it survived the war. And of course, I knew uh, your family very well. Uh, this is slightly incestuous, isn't it? Uh, the, um, the answer to that is I became aware fairly early, but it's become more obvious in the course of my life that uh, the trauma that affected uh, the wider milieu from which your grandfather came, but particularly my parents, both of whom were refugees to Britain from Hitler. My mother was Dutch. My father came from Vienna, both of whose immediate families survived by luck and judgment, but whose wider families were pretty well, without exception, massacred, murdered in the Holocaust has profoundly shaped my view of the world. It's, I think, in large part, why I got involved in economics. It's how I res have responded to periods of instability in the 70s, economic instability then, inflation, the oil shocks, and even more to the financial crisis of 12 years ago. And now, um, my profound view is that in order to preserve liberal democracy, which I believe in passionately, something I acquired from my father and mother, um, you have to keep the show on the road. You have to keep economics stable. You have to give people hope. You have to uh, preserve a, a, a stable economic underpinning for a stable political order. And without that, catastrophe can ensue. So to me, the Great Depression was the great catastrophe, not the only one from which Nazism and other disasters in, emerged. So, yes, throughout my professional life, this has been a theme of mine. There have been some others. And when disasters strike, and we're now in the middle of an enormous economic disaster, of course, that sense that we have to get through this in one piece, and it's not easy to do, is an overriding one for me. Just to go back slightly more recently, do, do you see, and before we tackle the pandemic heads on, do you see... Trumpism and also Brexit, and of course there are reasonable arguments on both sides of Brexit, so this isn't intended to be a tribalist conversation, but do you see the roots of those two movements in the previous financial crisis of 2007-8-9? Well, I'm in the middle of writing a book on this, and I see it as now, as the consequence of two things that came together, um, one of which I didn't recognise sufficiently at the time. First, there has been a long period in which our societies, and particularly in Britain and America, have separated into winners and losers. And the separation has been very substantial. And uh, the losers have felt, for a whole host of reasons, felt, um, with some degree of justice, I think, uh, abandoned. But up to 2007, eight, there was at some sense that the, the water was lifting the boat and everybody was getting something out of it. And that was actually relatively true in Britain, less true in America. And then came the financial crisis. And in the financial crisis, they experienced a huge shock, a sudden huge increase in unemployment. Subsequently, growth never returned and real wages didn't recover. And there was austerity, which affected public spending on things that mattered to these previous losers dramatically. And of course, the winners were all saved. Uh, you know, the banks were all saved. And so it seemed not only was life much worse than they'd hoped and expected, but all, you know, the, the people who were in some sense responsible for it are for the ones that were saved. That left open the world to populist demagogues. I think the, the sort of right-wing nationalist populist demagoguery we have seen has largely exploited rather than offered any solution for the problems. I think it's in some respects even completely cynical. But yes, uh, the, the, the distrust and of and disgust with the center, the technocracy, the establishment is, I think, rooted in those two causes. And it's overpoweringly important to address these problems. Do you think that what you've just said went some way to inform and 
influence, the relative speed with which Rishi Sunak and, and the government came to the aid of the everyday man and woman during this crisis? Or do you think that was simply a broader economic calculation that if it didn't intervene in such spectacular terms, then there would have been a massive collapse from which almost everybody would have suffered? I think it's both. It's important to note that every Western government that has fiscal capacity, and fiscal capacity varies, has spent massively. So one of the most striking things that has happened is that the Germans, who have been you know, the, the prophets of you know, fiscal discipline, uh, who have committed themselves to an absolute fiscal balance, you know, no borrowing at all, have been, now been spending immensely, far more than any other uh, of the European countries. Uh, America, under the Republicans, uh, admittedly Trump is an unusual Republican. He, he likes spending, but the Conservatives are very much in charge in, in the Senate, but they, they agreed to an enormous spending program. I think it's amounts about $3 trillion. So it's an enormous sum. So it's global. And I think it recognizes that this is a crisis they have to respond to, otherwise catastrophe ensues. Um, but I think in the British context, and I think that fits a little with the American context, there's an awareness that we can't go back to austerity. Uh, we, we did that rather recently. And uh, that in any case, that sort of free market sensibility is weakened it was already clear in Boris Johnson's election campaign to take just focus on the British that this was a sort of one nation offering leveling up uh, the regions that had gone for Brexit and thus attract offering that and attracting votes in these former Labour constituencies that it was already therefore a new Conservative Party it wasn't the old Conservative Party and then this hit and then that also force them to act very, very strongly because otherwise they would have abandoned these new supporters. So I think politics is now in a fundamentally different place from where it was uh, even a year or two ago. So we're talking briefly there about the short-term solutions, the, the sticky plaster. We're going to come to the longer-term solutions and what you anticipate those might be and whether there's going to be a need for a reimagining of politics. I was talking to Professor Rebecca Henderson yesterday about reimagining capitalism. Well, will we have to redo politics? We'll come to that in a moment. But first of all, I want to get a sense from you of how you feel the British, but also the Americans and the EU have handled the crisis thus far. Your columns are much more preoccupied, of course, with economics than they are with party politics, but you don't pull your punches, you say it as you see it, and in one of your recent columns, you said that the British government was incompetent. So how badly or well do you think those three parties, the UK, America and the EU, have handled things so far? Well, the, you can only really measure it by performance. So I, I don't want to go into the details of policy making. At this stage, it seems to me there are two ways of judging how well uh, a country has done, or three ways. Uh, the first is how well have they done in controlling the pandemic? Um, and how brutal, how many people have died? Developed countries should have the capacity to protect their people relatively well. And uh, on that metric, um, Britain, unfortunately, really does look very bad. It's on both of the possible measures of cumulative fatalities, we're the second highest in the world. But the US has also done pretty badly, not as uh, badly as we've done for a whole host of reasons. It's not just about policy. And uh, it looks as though there may well be a second wave in, in America. But we are at, sort of up there with Spain and Italy, which is, I think, not where we would normally expect to be. And worse, we got it later than them. So we could see what was happening. And we are far, far above, say, Germany. That, so that doesn't look too great. In economics, uh, we don't know what finally this is going to turn out like. But we've got recent, very recent forecasts, which are, I think, very carefully done by the OECD in Paris, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. And that says that 
this year, we, they've got various, but essentially the biggest collapses among the very similar, we're talking somewhere between 115 to 14% declines in GDP this year. The biggest recessions by far since the 30s and worse than ours in the 30s. That Britain is there, down there among the OECD countries right at the bottom with Spain, Italy and France. Um, we're there and basically everybody else is forecast, including the US, to do, to suffer much less badly. So in those two dimensions, we haven't done very well. There's a third dimension, which is how well have we cushioned the blow of the crisis? Uh, you know, we've had this huge economic decline. That's because of the huge lockdown. And that's because we didn't handle the pandemic very well. We understand that. But how well have we cushioned it? I think the Treasury, partly because we've got our own central bank, we don't, we're not in the euro, uh, the Bank of England has responded very, very competently. I believe it's learned a lot from what it did last time. We have our own central bank, which I think is very important. I was always against being in the euro. They have used these means to spend immensely to support the economy, to support people with a furlough scheme, schemes for small business and all the rest of it. And I think that's been really very well done. So I would give them good marks on one, and pretty poor marks on two other aspects of handling the crisis so far. But these are early days. These are very early days. This could go on for a long time. It might not. Maybe it'll all be over by Christmas, as it were. But it's quite likely it'll go on, and there's still a lot of room for us to improve, I hope. So let's focus just on the EU, because you've made no secret of your desire for that to survive as, as an institution or a series of institutions. And you point out in your pieces that this is an organization that has grown in strength out of adversity. So just for example, from the Second World War and then the challenges of the 1970s and so forth, how do you think it's responded to this crisis? Because it's been wobbly for the last 10 years or so, not least because of Brexit and earlier the threat of Grexit. How do you feel it has come out of this so far? And what do you make of that rescue package of hundreds of billions of euros? So I can only answer this by putting this in a slightly broader context, because that I think gets the flavor of what I think their problem is. Um, so I have always believed very strongly, perhaps partly because of the, the background we share in the catastrophe of Europe, uh, the great disaster of the first half of the 20th century, that going back to the balance of power and each nation for itself is absolutely catastrophic for this very densely packed collection of states and human beings with all the tensions that they've historically had between them and that a structured relationship with a, a set of rules, legal frameworks, which gives predictability to an open economies, underpins relations among them, and particularly relations among the important powers and centrally with Germany, is a great necessity and a great achievement. And I remain convinced of that fundamental political reality. And I also think from an economic point of view, these are na they're natural trading partners with one another and also for us. And therefore, the, the more deeply integrated their economies through the market, the more prosperous they're likely to be. And that was part of why Western Europe did so much better than Central and Eastern Europe after the war. So that was a core. I think they made an enormous mistake, and I haven't changed my mind on that. There are things I've changed my mind on. I think they made an enormous mistake in creating the currency union, particularly one that included all, ultimately, pretty well everybody who could join. Because these are very diverse economies, very diverse polities. They didn't create, because they couldn't, a genuine politically accountable union, federal union, and they couldn't create a centralized public finance system at all. And I believe in the modern world, we're not in the 19th century, the system that looks rather like the gold standard, irrevocable exchange rates and so forth, doesn't work very well. Now, I believe history has vindicated that. But after the financial crisis, they did resolve this just about with immense activism finally from the central bank, largely because of Mario Draghi, which sort of resolved the worst parts of the crisis in the financial markets and the debt markets, and with some support from Germany 
particularly when allowing the emergence of a stability mechanism. But it was a very close run thing and it left enormous political and economic scars, massive divergence among economies, particularly Italy, very badly affected, Germany doing very well, I can go into more. So that's the legacy, that's where they were. Now they're hit by this crisis. It's a common crisis, it's not something that separates people like the financial crisis, it's a common crisis. But of course, some countries can spend massive, like, like Germany now, and some like Italy can't. Some will be much more hit by the pandemic, Italy again, and Germany much less so. I'm just focusing on these countries because they're at the screens. And that means that some countries will sink further behind and others are going to do rather well. So that's, the, that's very dangerous. And the danger is that at some point, somebody will come along and get elected and say, this whole system is against us. We've got to get out of it. And I don't believe there's a viable alternative. I don't think Italexic is a viable proposition for Italy. Not convinced Brexit is for Britain, as you probably know, but I'll leave that aside. But, but Italy is very different. However, how are they going to fix this? Um, it's a huge challenge for them. Absolutely huge. And at the end, it, we don't know how it'll end. What will have to, there are two elements in fixing it. One, the ECB has to operate completely freely as if it were the central bank for every individual country. It's done this so far. Will it be allowed to continue to do this? We don't know. And the second thing they're going to have to do is produce quite a lot of money that gives a shared resources, which can be used by the weaker countries one way or another. And the proposals between the, the French and the Germans and the Commission go a little way towards that. So, so far, I would say they're doing quite a bit. I can't go into all the details, but it's absolutely at the minimal end of what will be needed to keep this show really successfully on the road. It's not just an economic challenge for the EU. Of course. It's also, in a sense, an ideological challenge. If, if you look at the shutting down of borders, which has been anathema to the whole project, certainly in, in recent years and decades, that creates a huge amount of uncertainty. It fits in also to a wider question of how we grapple with this pandemic moving forward and other similar challenges, given that we are now entrenched in many ways in a, in a sort of creeping nationalism. You look at Brazil, you look at America, to some extent you look at the UK, you look, also look at other countries with, within the EU. To what extent do you think nationalism and strongman politics and the sort of entrenchment that I'm talking about, the, the, the lesser degree of flexibility that we're experiencing, quite literally in travel restrictions, how are these going to be barriers to moving forward? Well, this has so many dimensions. First of all, uh, I, I understand, though I've looked at it in detail, that the European themselves have largely lifted these restrictions. But, of course, that's a very big factor. Let's go back to two elements in your question. The first is, and we've already discussed this in the context of Britain and America, but it's broader, is uh, uh, we're living in an age of resurgent nationalism. That's clear and resurgent authoritarianism, if you think more broadly. And that's particularly obvious in emerging and developing countries. And there's a very long list of cases. Uh, you, you talk about Brazil. This is, if you like, democratically elected authoritarianism. You could see it in Brazil, in Turkey, in some respects, India, um, uh, Philippines, Thailand, military government. And then, of course, uh, democratically elected politicians with very clear authoritarian attitudes in some respects. We've got Donald Trump. And then, of course, we've got the rise of China, which is an immense power with a strong, very strong, increasingly strong communist, whatever you call it, authoritarian, communist, centralizing state machine. So that's the first thing that's happening. And much of that was happening long before this crisis. But, of course, this is then reinforced by the second fact, which is in a crisis like this, completely naturally and completely appropriately, the first responder is the state. Everywhere we rely on the state to protect us in a crisis of this kind. That's what states are for. They play an enormous role in health systems, even in a country like the US, which 
doesn't have a universal health system, but nonetheless, the state is central. Uh, the state controls movement of people. The state controls movement of people into the country. The state, of course, controls the borders and can stop things from coming in. That's inevitable. So authoritarianism well under the way, nationalism well under the way, and the states get involved. And the question is, some of that was natural and inevitable, but of course it's very, very disruptive. And our economies, all of our economies, least so in a giant like the US, but all of our economies depend massively on trade. There are a huge number of things we can't make here, which we have to import and so forth. We're not all going to become self-sufficient. It would be crazy to do so. So if this goes far enough, we can completely disrupt the existing world economy and it becomes a follow-on crisis from the complete breakdown of order. And there's one final element in this, which so that's the segmentation of countries, that's where it can lead. But the final element is that a crisis like this is also a common challenge. The pandemic is obviously a common challenge. We are all affected by it, but so is economic response because we all depend on other people's markets. Uh, if we want tourists to come in, well, we want people to let them to come in and so forth. Now, if these autocratic, nationalist, somewhat xenophobic governments cannot deal with one another, and that's what we're seeing in significant measure, all that cooperation goes out of the window. And I would say the response to this crisis in many dimensions has been very poor in that respect, compared even to what was done after the financial crisis. And presumably when cooperation goes out of the window, trade is at least to some extent threatened. I want to talk in a little bit more detail about trade, because I think you believe that even pre-pandemic, the way in which the supply chains were working around the world was diminishing and that you anticipate therefore now and partly perhaps because of the pandemic that we're going to move from the globalization of things to a virtual globalization. Now there are big risks aren't there if we do withdraw into ourselves more than we have done and some of those risks are our own but some of those risks are focused on the developing world. And I know you're very concerned about the effects of the pandemic, at least in the short term on the developing world, but perhaps in the long term, because if we become more localised, that raises serious issues for those in lower income countries. Well, I, you've basically stated the problem uh, very well. I know there's, there's, globalisation has become very controversial in the West. Actually, in most emerging and developing countries, it's not so controversial. There are exceptions, of course. Uh, and the most successful developing countries, including China, Vietnam, India for that matter, Bangladesh and so forth, have actually expanded their trade enormously and very, very beneficially, uh, in my view, unquestionably very beneficially. So if that's all closed off, then that's going to be a problem. And it's particularly going to be a problem for the smaller and weaker countries. I just, yesterday was in a webinar talking about Africa. And one of the problems that came out was there are countries, Kenya is an example, which exports a lot of flowers and they can't do it because the planes have stopped. So that's just killed a huge industry. Um, so these are very real things that really matter to fragile countries. Other things they've lost, they've lost remittances. They've lost tourism. Tourism is a big deal for these countries. So this is a very serious uh, crisis for them. Now, it's also related to where, where we were before. And we've already talked about where we were in politics before and the, the fact that we're still very much in the shadow of the financial crisis, which you could say it hasn't finished, but the worst of it finished only eight years or so ago. I mean, the depth of it, eight or nine, depends on where, uh, where, where you are. So we are still in the shadow of that. Well, the same applies to trade. After the financial crisis, partly because of the financial crisis and partly because other natural phenomena, the growth of trade slowed already. Supply chain integration has slowed already. Protection between massive disruption in trade between the US and China particularly was already well underway. Now this comes along and it all gets worse. The political relations between these governments get worse. The uh, economics has obviously become much more problematic because of the breakdown of travel and all the rest of it. And then there's this fundamental return of economic nationalism as well as political nationalism. So it is possible 
and this is to conclude that, and this is what I'm concerned about, that we will do what happened in the 30s. It started with a great slump and then it moved on to collapse the whole world trade structure. And that made it a global and deep crisis. If you like a second wave of crisis, economic crisis, like a second wave of pandemic, which comes from profound policy mistakes in response to the immediate crisis. So I want to come back in a moment to the scale of the crisis that we are facing now and how you evaluate that. But before we do, because we're talking about international relations and trade, you've mentioned China, but only relatively briefly. How do you see that the trade battles or possibly wars between America and China developing? And, And to what extent is that related to a way out of this crisis? Because again, in one of your columns, you've said that China has had a rather good crisis, ironically, given that the disease emanated from China. Well, again, this is probably, we've discussed already two of the trends that were in place before uh, uh, the crisis, the change in our politics and the change in our economy, the the deglobalization, which I started writing about many years ago. Well, the third thing that has happened uh, is a fundamental trend, and again, it was clearly underway before the crisis, a fundamental transformation in the relations between the US and China, or to some degree, the Western China. Where Europe and Britain goes in this is not clear, but it's looking increasingly like they'll go with the US against China. And that's a, the rise of China was a fundamental transformation of the world. In some respects, I think, geopolitically, the most important transformation of the world since the rise of the West. And as the Chinese would quite reasonably say, a natural rebalancing. Now, the Americans, particularly concerned about their position in the world, hadn't begun to notice this very seriously quite a long time ago. And under Mr. Trump, can't say the policy is very coherent, but it's very clear that what's emerging is a bipartisan consensus, though he's at the extreme end of it. Well, actually, that's not fair. People in his party are in the extreme end. John Bolton was far more extreme than Mr. Trump. But to regard China as a fundamental competitor, a strategic competitor, and the relationship as fundamentally adversarial, and China as fundamentally a cheat on all, a cheat across the board, in which trade was a part. And that was there before. Now we get the crisis. Things have gone pretty well, gotten pretty well in China. There had recent problems in after handling the crisis. The economy is recovering. Uh, they feel sort of confident. Uh, it's pretty clear that in the US, at least with Mr. Trump, that his view is they caused the crisis and they're going to be held accountable for it. And they're the enemy. That's a natural thing for a strongman nationalist to say in this situation. So relationships have really gone very badly. And the trade deal they reached before this emerged never looked very plausible. Now looks really implausible. Resolving all their trade issues seems inconceivable to me. And then there are all the other security and other issues between them. So I would say we're at a very delicate stage, to put it mildly, in the relationships between the world's two greatest powers, and that will affect everything. Economics, politics, security, and it's overwhelmingly probable, I think. I don't like it, but overwhelmingly probable that that will become the fundamental reality of the global political and economic order for a generation. How this will end up, I don't know, but again, the cri- I regard in all these respects, it's a crucial point, COVID-19 is not yet obviously transformative, but it's an accelerator. It's taken trends and, and accelerated. And that leads me to your virtual thing. One of the other things it's done is it's accelerated the shift to virtual integration like this from the real side. Real trade is diminishing. I suspect movement of people will diminish. Many people will cheer because less flights, good. But virtual integration will accelerate. And that's another way in which what's happening now is accelerating us into a future. And the future will, one, be very different from the pre-financial crisis past, and in some ways, very, very uncomfortable. 
So we're talking about a, a future that could become more and more remote. And if we have time later, maybe this will be a question from the audience, we can, we can mention robotics because AI is clearly a crucial part of Indeed. how we emerge and would have been an important part of the future anyway. But let's just sort of grasp the elephant in the room, which is how bad is this crisis economically now in the West? Let's take Britain and America. Well, let's start with Britain. Just how deep is the recession we're about to face? Do you anticipate it becoming a depression? Could it become a great depression across the pond? And how do we judge it? Why do I not sense the same, quite the same degree of panic economically now that we did in the financial crisis? Is that because we can only really cope with one idea at a time as human beings and we're focused at the moment on our health and trying not to get the disease? Well, first of all, what's happening to the economy in terms of output, you know, the measures, standard measures for all their faults, uh, and what's happening to people. So the, this is going to be, without the slightest question, this year, the steepest decline in world output, and output for, I think, most countries, not all, but certainly for the world, since the early 30s, quite possibly the steepest decline in peacetime, leaving aside disruption in war, since 1870. That was... Furthermore, this is a very important figure. Pretty well every country in the world has an economy that is shrinking massively. And that's very important because in the last financial crisis, we think of it as a Western crisis rightly, China's economy grew like mad in 2009, expanded by more than 10%. And that pulled much of the world out of it. That's not going to happen the same way. China is recovering a bit, but it's still very weak. So this is a huge global crisis. Second, the declines in GDP expected this year, we've got obviously a huge cut this quarter. Probably GDP has fallen 25% when we've got the measure at least in the lockdown economy. But the expectation and the latest for which it seems to me plausible is that in the most badly hit developed countries like ours, GDP could decline by somewhere between a minimum of 11 and a maximum of 14% this year. Depends the maximum if we get another wave. That is a great depression. That's a, not a recession. That's a depression uh, in economic terms. That's up there clearly with uh, uh, the Great Depression. Um, there were num the, the smallest declines in the developed world, probably of any significant economy, maybe five or 6%. So it's a massive depression. But we don't feel it, or most of us don't feel it. Obviously, the people who really feel it are people who feel it because they've lost jobs, they're not adequately cushioned, that's all clear. Um, and of course, there are people who are risking their lives, which that's related to the pandemic. There's no question about that. And obviously, all the children at home that feel that. But they don't. We don't feel it in terms of spending capacity in quite the way that we would have expected. Certainly in the Great Depression or even the financial crisis, because governments are spending like mad, which is wonderful. So they have cushioned this by borrowing on a truly epic scale. The only time governments have spent like this and borrowed like this in a crisis, above all borrowed, run deficits like this across the world in this way before, particularly in the developed world, is in the world wars. So this is wartime finance, truly wartime finance. And the result is debt is exploding, which is absolutely fine because it's very cheap. The central banks can buy it. And because that means supports people's incomes. And there's lots they can't spend their money on anyway now. But it's given, I think, most people, I hope, most people in the developed world, depends on how good the cushion has been, how well it's been created. We discussed that before. Enough to live on, enough to survive. Though this can't go on forever. So that makes it feel not quite as economically catastrophic as it really is. We've parked the spending side, and there's obviously lots of saving because people aren't able to spend it all. So we've handled this side of this enormous decline, I think, remarkably well in the countries that have the capacity to borrow and spend like this. 
And now then the question is, how do we go back to normality? Because we're obviously not going to borrow like this forever. Uh, and that's a very, very big question. And there are lots of countries around the world where most people live, which can't do this. And of course, there, particularly where there are people in the informal economy, more than half of the workers in Africa work in the informal economy. There isn't a welfare system. The economy is imploding. There we're going to have terrible trouble and huge increases in the number of destitute people across the world. But that is going to be cushioned, I think, in the developed world. Your, your answer begs two further questions. You say that we can't continue to borrow in the way that we are at the moment forever. But what is the limit? What is the extent to which we can borrow should this pandemic rumble on? And I suppose well, the other question is, and they're linked, how do we pay for this debt? Who's going to pay? And that comes back to what we were talking about very early on. I said we'd return to it. And it is this question of whether we have to reimagine politics. There's no appetite, it seems, for a second wave of austerity, as it were. So does that mean higher taxes? I think I've read that you're in favour of some sort of land tax? Will a wealth tax become even more in vogue than perhaps it was already? How do, how do we emerge from this fiscally? Well, the issue on the first question is controversial, uh, as you'd expect, uh, because there's so much we don't know. I think the plausible view of the future, it's not certain, is that given how we came into the crisis with extraordinarily low interest rates already for reasons which I think are structural and fundamental, which I've written about a lot, but probably we don't need to go into. We hit the crisis. There was a complete collapse in demand. And this is in a situation which the central banks can intervene on an essentially limitless scale. So government borrowing is all being carried out across the Western world at real interest rates that are between zero and negative. In other words, uh, the returns on this investment to the people who are lending to governments directly or indirectly through monetary expansion, um, they're going to get nothing back. That's a tax. Okay? The biggest tax is ultimately that anybody who has financial assets either holding some of this indirectly, this huge amount of money that's being created or holding government bonds will get no return at all. None. And that's the biggest tax, if you like. But there's no reason why it shouldn't continue for quite a long time, uh, uh, possibly some years. Now, what happens at the end of this? Let's suppose this thing goes on for three or four years. That's, I think, at the extreme end. Then the government debt will explode. It will start, the borrowing will diminish, but it will explode upwards. And Britain say, and this is pure guess, we'll end up with a debt ratio, which we haven't seen since the early 1950s after the Second World War. Every government will have a massive pile of debt, provided they're sensible and are borrowed long-term at these ultra-low real interest rates, that should be manageable. Because they're basically squeezing the savers massively. Uh, and that's what happens in a, in a depression of this kind. And I think it's the least bad outcome. So that's part of your tax point of view. It's obviously very significant for people who want to buy an annuity. Returns are hopeless and they get to remain so. Now, it is possible that for those governments, particularly with doubtful credits, which are borrowed rather short term, they're going to have to roll this over at some point. People who borrow really long term don't have to, but they're going to roll it over and they may have to roll it over into a different world where interest rates are much higher, possibly much higher than the growth of their economy. Then they're going to go bankrupt and there will be uh, either defaults at some point, you can imagine that happening with the Eurozone, or there's going to be inflationary financing by the central bank, which just continues and we get serious inflation. So that's a possible outcome. But at the moment, we can manage this. So that parks the debt side. But of course, we also have these huge deficits. And I think they're not going to disappear, even if we recover, because our economies are going to be damaged by this crisis. They will therefore be permanently smaller than we thought they were going to be. And the spending profile, the underlying spending profile 
of our countries was really determined by decisions we made before the COVID-19 crisis started at all. So we will end up, some years hence, we don't know when, with what are called structural deficits. Namely, even when the economy is sort of back to normal, whatever that will be, we will have a shortfall of revenue because the economies will be smaller and at least as much spending as we thought there would be before and possibly much more because of all the other problems that have emerged as a result of the crisis. So we can't go on borrowing like this forever. Then we will certainly have defaults or an inflationary outcome. Don't know when, but at some point. So that is deficits, current budget deficits above all. We can borrow to invest will have to be closed somehow. And I don't think monetary financing will work without limit. So how will they be closed? Uh, that then becomes the big question. Well, essentially, there are only two options in that situation. You either cut spending relative to trend, um, long-term austerity of some kind, very difficult to do for the reasons you said, or you raise taxes. Um, Wealth taxes will be one way of getting the debt down. You can, that's a pretty direct way. If you have large wealth taxes, you can, it's not an ongoing way, in my view, to, to spend, to pay for, for ongoing current um, spending, but it's a way to get rid of debt. And in some countries, I think that might well have to happen. Um, but we might be looking at some rather radical proposals for raising revenue in the long term. Land taxes are one possibility. Other tax changes are conceivable, which will bring us to higher average and marginal taxes, probably weighted towards the top end. And then we've got all the issues of corporate tax avoidance and all the things we've been discussing very recently. So I think the fight over how to pay for this in the end um, will become very big. The biggest and best solution will be what happened in the 50s and 60s, or at least a large part of what happened in the 50s, 60s, which is a lot of economic growth. That helps a lot, but doesn't seem likely we're going to get it. Do you think it will become a party political thing, this fight as to how to deal with it? And the Corbyn project of, of, of socialism in his brand has failed, narrowly only in 2017, rather more emphatically in December of last year. Nonetheless, the, the current leader of the Labour Party, who's more progressive, I would argue, more, certainly more moderate than Corbyn and more successful, it seems. He's a self-described socialist as well. And yet we've seen the Conservative government dish out all this free money. And I use that term loosely, which would have been ideologically entirely counterintuitive to them. So I just wonder how party political it will be and whether in America, if we can briefly trip across the pond again, whether you think in terms of how we respond to this fiscally, it makes that much of a difference who wins in November. It might matter hugely in terms of identity politics, but from a fiscal and economic perspective, <laughs> whether it's Trump or Bride or Biden. So there are a whole host of questions here. I think the... I'm running out of time, so I was trying okay, to... The general thrust of politics in Britain will be between people who will want to hold the line on taxes and people who want to raise them. I think it doesn't seem very likely at the moment to me, looking at the current government or its opposition, that anyone is going to come forward and say the solution is to cut spending massively. Uh, um, so um, the people who say we shouldn't we, we will do, won't raise taxes, we'll confront these deficits, and de facto they will live with them. Uh, and that's sort of Trumpian. And I, I think what Johnson will want to do, I don't think it's what the Chancellor will want to do, but I think it's what he will want to do. And, you know, persuade, borrow their way out and hope the Bank of England will help him. Um, you know, hope for a rainy day, as it were. I assume the Labour Party will come into the next election with proposals for raising taxes. I think it would be ineluctable if they want to appear responsible. I believe so, not certain. But the question is how that will play politically. The broader point I would make is that it is probable, not certain, because it depends on so many variables here about how quick the recovery is, how strong it is, uh, how long the borrowing goes on for, and so forth is that the debate about 
spending and tax will return to the center of politics everywhere. And uh, in the American case, it really will be interesting because essentially what the, uh, there has been no appetite on either side uh, for serious spending cuts under, under the Trump. Um, the, the Republicans have focused on cutting taxes um, so they had created a huge structural deficit. The Democrats wanted more spending. So both parties agree we should run great big deficits. That's the point. Uh, that seems to me the consensus in America. We should run great big deficits. And now they're going to be even bigger. And again, I suspect that will continue until there's a crisis. So my prediction is we will run the way we're running now, defectively not doing very much to resolve the problem. It won't be like 2010 here. And uh, at some point we will hit a crisis of some kind, which will really shape how we deal with this, uh, with this problem. And that might be 10 years from now. I have no idea when, because we're in a very strange world. So I want to bring in the audience question for two questions. And if you could answer them as concise as is possible, given they are enormous, but I just want to get a flavor of, where you stand on them. We mentioned AI earlier, robotics. How big a part of the future is that? And how challenging do you anticipate the move towards a far greater and more widespread use of robotics in both blue collar and white collar jobs? How smooth do you anticipate that process being economically? So I can help you with this by saying, having read a lot of literature on this, I'm absolutely convinced that I don't know the answer. Okay. Uh, and I'm not sure that they do, but that's important because it means that the possible outcomes span a very wide field between it's going to be the end of jobs for almost every human being and we're going to go the, economically the way of the horse and the, the extreme opposite, we don't really know. And so, and I honestly think, I think it's somewhere in between, but I think it's going to be big, but probably quite not quite as massively disruptive as some think. And how do you understand the psychology of a looming climate catastrophe from an economist's point of view? Well, one of the things I, what I think is human beings, and this pandemic has reinforced my sense of this, human beings only respond, really respond to imminent crisis. And they only really do something when it is so obvious that they have to do something. And even then it's a bit too late, as we've seen. Uh, so I am fortunately have written for 20 years on this topic, 15 years, I don't know. And I've always believed that we will leave this too late. Uh, we will never act in time to stop the problem. And though that's not what I want, it's not what I've argued for, but if I look at the evidence, that's what's happened. With one crucial point, the technology has moved more rapidly in favor of dealing with the emissions problem than I thought most people thought 15 years ago that makes it cheaper to deal with this and that might make it more politically attractive so it gives an opportunity to do much more at lower cost than we thought 10 years ago and maybe that will shift the calculus and we will get acting but we've got to change the whole path of carbon emissions in this decade that's the last chance as far as i can see what does acting too late mean? I mean, does that make you fear for your grandchildren's future? Well, it mean, acting too late means that we will end up with enormous and potentially unmanageable climate change. That the 1.5 degree increase above pre-industrial levels, which uh, IPCC talked about recently, is, is gone. Two degrees becomes inconceivable. And we're talking, God, somewhere, three, four, who knows? And then we're in a different world, completely new world. And nobody knows fully how bad that will be. Some questions from the audience. Gabriella wants to know what's going to happen to the housing market in central London. Well, I regard the housing market in the central London as one of the, uh, the seven wonders of the economic world. So I believed it's just ludicrous for a long time. But ultimately, the housing market in central London is a product of London's place as a favored investment place for very wealthy individuals 
around the world. It's a globe, part of a global market. It's not a national market. And that depends ultimately, I think, on two things, how prosperous the world economy is, how much people trust the stability of Britain politically and economically, and the friendliness of Britain as an environment for putting lots and lots of money. My guess is, given the scale of the disruption we're now seeing, people might rethink that. But that's what it depends on. Laura wants to know what effect you think the current crisis will have on people claiming disability benefits. I think it would be foolish for me to answer that question, except the labour market is going to be difficult for a long time. And uh, the general tendency is that people who suffer from disadvantages in the labour market are unfortunately the last to get rehired. Uh, that's quite general. And if that is the case and we don't get a really strong recovery, I expect a lot of people will find themselves out of the labour market, unable to get a job, and therefore they will need other forms of support. I hope that's a reasonable answer. Uh, it's a rather depressing one, I think. Marcelo says, do you believe that monetization of the deficit can be part of the solution? And if so, why did it not work? He asks in Latin America and Africa. Well, the answer to that question is it already is part of the uh, solution. And the broad answer to that, and I've written about this, monetization is a tool that can be used if you live in a country in which the people have very strong trust in the authorities, in which there is a far bigger problem of low inflation than high inflation, and in which the, the management of the monetary policy is in the hands of institutions that people trust. So on one end, we're having massive monetization in Japan, I mean, immense, and it's causing no disruption at all. And in Latin America, it blows up at once because people are already so frightened of the possibility of inflation, they immediately leap into other currencies above all the dollar. And that hasn't happened in Britain um, because people still trust the pound. But of course, if we got flight from the pound into the dollar, the same thing would happen to us. So I regard it as an effective and useful tool in the right circumstances under the right institutional control, and it cannot be limitless. So the that's a very important mistake to make. Otherwise, we become Argentina. And in a handful of sentences, in answer to Gregory's question, what would be wrong with working towards self-efficiency, at least for essentials? Well, it depends what you mean by essentials. I have no real problem with... Uh, I mean, most people think would food would be essential, I suppose. And for central foodstuffs, that's probably true. But there are an enormous number of foodstuffs we get from the rest of the world, valuable to the exporters, which I really rather enjoy. Uh, and uh, I don't see why I would have to give up on them when I can perfectly well import them. Adam Smith had a very good discussion of the, the folly of trying to grow wine in Scotland. Uh, so... What are essentials? I think we need the capacity, we don't need to produce, to stockpile or have access reliably to things that could become extremely valuable in a crisis. That's absolutely clear. But self-sufficiency, uh, well, that's what North Korea has tried to do and it ha is, hasn't worked well. Couple more questions from the audience. Anne brings up Black Lives Matter quite rightly. It's something we haven't touched on. She says, could you please ask Martin about his opinion on the movement and do you see any positive response? And could you give remedies from an economist's point of view to the sorts of societal diseases that we experience in the shape of racism, xenophobia, homophobia? Just briefly. Briefly? <laughs> um... So we have structural features of our society, which go back a very, very long time. And I think it's pretty clear they're not going to be transformed uh, overnight. Some of them, uh, how the criminal justice system works, policing and so forth, can be dealt with to some degree uh, through... Um, institutional change, but even that is very difficult. But if you're talking about profound transformations of the economic situation of different groups in society, the evidence has been pretty consistent 
that it's this is these are generational changes um one can do some things if we move towards greater equality of income generally greater equality of earnings more generous welfare support you could imagine that that will benefit most people but if you look at who's doing well in our society who has the the highly paid jobs and so forth a lot of this seems to reflect very long term very path dependent economic processes and as far as I can see across the world, it's extremely hard to shift these rapidly. I think this is also an interesting and important question from Tito, who says, because we, we've talked about consumerism, but only very briefly, you've mentioned globalisation. Do you think if the COVID crisis extends beyond August, that it might sprout a psychological change in the way that consumers behave in regards to materialistic greed? In other words, what would the economic impacts be if there were to be a very reduced consumption amongst us or a minimalist lifestyle trend. I think it's quite interesting thought. Well, I meet people who think, and there are lots of people who think that's what ought to happen. I'm not going to go into what ought to happen. Uh, my, I, I was at the very beginning, and this is an art best answer, the very beginning of our discussion, uh, of this crisis, sorry. I was in a webinar organized by the FT in which the question happened, what would life be like? And I thought about this and I thought, well, we had the First World War and then we had the Spanish flu, two great disasters. And what followed was the Roaring Twenties. Now, of course, this didn't mean anything for the people who were poor and it's a very poor time. by But basically everybody who had any disposable income seems to have gone out in the Western world and partied to enjoy themselves. I think these are predictions, not normative, but I think on the contrary, after the fear, the deprivation, the anxiety, uh, there will be a tremendous desire, particularly among younger people, to go back to a more normal life, which would include a life of consuming, traveling, meeting people, entertaining, going to restaurants, having parties. So I suspect it will be nothing like as transformative as people who think that it should be transformative hope. Let's finish with these two further thoughts. Something we haven't mentioned at all is the, the idea of technology and the influence that it might have in terms of the big state and maybe the overbearing state. There's going to be a drive, isn't there, during this crisis, but also post-COVID, towards an increasing reliance on the state for our safety and maybe an increasing preparedness to give up some of our rights and our, and our privacy and our freedoms to that end. Is, is that a, a worry? You might not be so interested in answering whether it's a worry, but what sort of economic impact might that have? I think it, to, in many respects it is a worry. Uh, we are clearly, after, if you think of the 1980s and 90s and early 2000s as a period of economic liberal, liberalization, globalization, increasing focus on personal freedom and all the rest of it. And that's too simple, but in the West, I'm just focusing on the West. I think since the financial crisis, and this will reinforce it, the state is back. And in at least as far as, and of course we've got over mighty technology companies too, you know, uh, that was a bit of a surprise. So the, the, the combination could be we've got surveillance capitalism, and you know, we know this, and we're going to have the surveillance state. Once the state is back in and present in the way it's been, and we discussed about the future politics, I don't expect it to go away. People will demand more from it and it will intervene more. How exactly that balance will be struck depends a lot on how politics unfolds, but I think it's implausible that this will be another stage in the reassertion of state power and the state as the focus of identity as well. As a final thought, given that we are at home with you, something slightly more personal. Uh, I became aware this week of, of a phrase, if it's not misattributed, by Eleanor Roosevelt, who was the wife of FDR Roosevelt, who famously said there was nothing to fear but fear itself. And it's maybe an appropriate place to stop because he was, of course, president during the Great Depression. But she said, I think, that tomorrow is a mystery and today is a gift, which is why we call it the present. You deal in the mystery of tomorrow. 
as an economist. What's it actually like being an economist, Martin? Uh, oh, it's great fun. Uh, um, you, you mostly get to depress people uh, for saying things really rather problematic. I suppose my answer for me is that economics is a tool, very definitely not the only one, for sort of unraveling what is really going on underneath what we see, trying to work out the puzzle of our world. How does it work? How is it working? How does it interact? And I like, I really like trying to work out uh, how I think these things fit together. And I've got increasingly interested in outfits with politics and all the rest of it. So what it's like being an economist is it's enormously uh, intellectually fascinating and demanding and uh, and so it keeps you alive and or at least it keeps me alive because it satisfies something that is very deep in me which is just to understand um and explain that's all i do i try to understand i explain what i think i understand and people tell me constantly how wrong i am and i realize that quite often i've been wrong but sometimes i've been right it's that's I do what I do. Well, you've explained things brilliantly and very candidly this evening. It's been a great pleasure to spend the last hour with you. Thank you so much, Martin, for your time. Thank you to everyone for joining. I'm sure right across the world, it's been brilliant to have so many of you with us. As I said at the beginning, this is just the first in a series of At Homes With, At Home With, and there will be Rory Bremner and John Snow and Victoria Hislop and Lord Winston and Alan Rusbridger and John Humphreys and others to come. Oh, so your Friday evenings from now until I hope deep into August, you will spend with us at the How To Academy. Lots more events as well beyond that, of course. Find them on the How To Academy website. Find Martin on Twitter. Find me on Twitter at Matthew Stadden. And you can find me if you're up late tonight on LBC from one till five. Thank you, Martin. Thank you, everyone. And see you very soon. This week's podcast starred Martin Wolf and was presented by Matthew Stadlin. It was produced by me, Vas Christodoulou, and edited by John Doughty. How To Academy's daily live streams with the world's leading artists and thinkers are free and available on howtoacademy.com. You can catch up with any you miss on our YouTube channel. As ever, if you valued this week's show, please rate, review and subscribe to the series wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.